Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hi, this is Bill Peacock, and welcome to episode 54 of the Liberty Cafe. It's a blessing to have you with us today. It's also a blessing to be sponsored by Texas Scorecard, a great organization operating right here in the backyard of Austin, Texas, outside of Austin, Texas for the most part, which is probably not a bad place to be as opposed to being inside of Austin, Texas. Uh, I myself recently changed my address from Austin, Texas to the Texas Hill Country. And it, it wasn't a whole lot of distance in miles, but it was a really nice change when it came to atmosphere. And I still like the big cities and those kind of things. And Austin's getting to be a huge city. I think they're like the 11th largest city in the United States today. But it's still kind of crazy to think that But from where it was when I got here. But nonetheless, it's nice being out in the country and outside of the craziness that is this blue dot in what is well, mostly a red state, although you know we've got a lot more blue dots today than we used to. But I digress. We're actually talking about Texas Scorecard and the great job they're doing here in Texas to fight for liberty for all of us. And so great to be a part of their team. Well, today we're going to talk about the law. And, you know, we, last week on episode 53, we had Todd Benzman on and, and and he talked about immigration and national security. And if you want to find one place where it seems like there is no law, or at least where there is law, nobody's paying attention to it, it's it's immigration in this country. And, and I think we know why that's the case, at least for a lot of people, is because they don't like the laws that we have in this country, and they want to get a whole bunch of people in who will follow them into changing these laws and totally eradicating the foundations of the law in our country. So I want us to take a look at the importance of law. And in this first episode, we're going to look at the, at the law as the foundation for liberty. Uh, and not just in this country, but in our own personal lives, from an internal perspective. And so we're, we're going to talk about that starting law. We're going to talk about law starting with God's law because that's where all law stems from. And let me just start us off here with a quote from John Calvin, great theologian, Christian Reformed theologian. And he wrote, in giving a summary of what constitutes the true knowledge of God, we showed that we cannot form any just conception of the character of God without feeling overawed by his majesty and bound to do him service. Well, that applies to the law in large part because it is the law that more than anything else, God's law is revealed to us in the Bible that reveals to us the character of God. And so the law, if you will, reveals to us the lawgiver, God. What a wonderful gift that is to us to be able to see who God is, who is what his attributes are, 
how he's holy and true and good, right? And we see that in the law. We don't often think of the law in that perspective. It always has sort of a negative connotation, but that's really where the law starts. And in fact, Romans tells us, Romans chapter 7 tells us that the law is holy, right? And the commandments of God are holy and just like him, just and true. Unfortunately today, not a lot of people are paying attention to God's law. And that's certainly true by secularists or atheists or agnostics or whatever, however you want to label people, unbelievers who don't know God. But it's even unfortunately true in the Christian world where people tend to think that the law is just this Old Testament stuff, and we're in the New Testament. We live by grace, not by law. And there is some truth in that aspect. The law does not save us. We are saved by God's grace. But that doesn't mean that the law is not still important to Christians. I've got a couple of quotes here from Psalm 119, which is about God's law. Which I, which I thought I'd read to us and, and just highlight how far short the whole world really, some people more than others, but the whole world really falls when it comes to just desiring God and his law. Uh, Psalm 119 verse 143 says, Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your, my, your commandments are my delight. No matter what's going on with us, we should delight in God's laws. Here's a quote from verse 131. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. How many of us can say on a daily basis that we pant and long for God's commandments? That's a struggle we all have, and one of the problems that comes from that is not just from our personal piety, but it's how we take God's law and apply it to the world around us, and not just to our families, which is really important, or even to our friends or to our worship, all that's important, but to the world around us, to our institutions, whether it's government, civil government, whether it's music industry, whether it's entertainment industry, whether it's whatever place you are in your life, God's law applies to that, and we often just don't think about that way. And I think that's pretty obvious when it comes to civil law, right? When I say civil law, I mean law coming from civil government, whether it's criminal law or civil law. Because you look at it today, we look at it today, and I don't really think we, when we look at the United States law or even Texas law, Austin law, wherever it is you happen to live, you probably don't look at it and pant. You probably don't look at it and long for it. And you should. I mean, you really should, not at the law as we see it today, but as the law as it ought to be. Because the law of Austin and the law of Texas or Virginia or the United States or Brazil or wherever it is, all those laws ought to reveal to us the lawgiver just like God's law does. 
right? Now, it, it's, it's, it's different because it's not given to us directly by God, but the character of our laws, the scent of our laws, the aroma of our laws, the, the purpose of our laws should match that or seek to emulate that of what we get from God's law. And it's just not looking for that. So what I'd like to do today is just take, a, a, take us on a brief journey to look at the biblical roots of American law and how the liberty that we have today in America flows out of the Christian liberty that is foreshadowed by God's law. And then towards the end, we'll, we'll start well, – well, we'll – We'll go down that path, and then this is going to be a two-part series. The next week on episode 55, we're going to look at a little bit how that is really getting messed up. But at least we started in a pretty good place. So let me just start with this. Let me go way back to the very beginning, uh, to the very first law. And, of course, the first law in history was – don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, God wasn't didn't give that law to punish Adam and Eve, to tempt Adam and Eve, to show them what they couldn't do because they could obey that law. That law came in to, to distinguish between God the creator and Adam and Eve the creatures, right? And he gave that to us. But ever since that initial law, man has struggled with obeying the law, right? And I've been reading a book uh, called Slain Leviathan by Glenn Sunshine. And on has a chapter in there. I think it's chapter five, maybe, uh, maybe three, no, five or six. Anyway, Law and Government in the Protestant Reformation. And he, and he talks about how the church had come to see the, the, the law as the means of salvation, really, the, the Catholic church, because God demands perfection from us. And so the, the church at that, in that day and age, and this would have been the 1400s, 1500s, had during the Reformation, it, it had kind of used the law as a guide to earning righteousness and thus our salvation. Right. It's a lot more complicated than that, and, and that's a simplistic, if maybe even a little bit inaccurate description of the situation. But it's it's pretty close, right? But basically, just follow this st- these steps they gave us under the direction of the church. That was really important to to Catholicism at the day, and all will be well, right? And if you don't quite make it, well, then we got this little place called purgatory for you that you can be battle tested and hardened, or maybe your your uh, descendants can give us some money, and we'll get you out of there sooner. All those kind of things that could happen. But it, it was all legalism, basically, that in that point of time. So along comes Martin Luther, and there were plenty who came along before him, but he was the first big flame after a lot of sparks and, and little fires going on around the place. And then John Calvin after him and many others who came to see that the real truth was that Yes, God demands perfection of us, but we can never attain that righteousness ourselves, and that only comes through grace, and that gift of grace comes through us only through Jesus Christ because he earned what we lacked, right, which is the righteousness and perfect obedience. So 
So the reformers looked at the law in a different perspective than the Catholics had been doing, and they saw um, three uses of God's law. First of all, it's to restrain us through fear of punishment. We, we are restrained from committing evil acts. The second is to convict us. The, the law shows us our guilt before God and drives us to the gospel. It, it shows us where we need to go. Now, it doesn't save us, but it drives us towards the gospel, and then the gospel provides the, the message of salvation and where we can go. And then thirdly, it's a guide for Christians about how to engage in right behavior. How do we act now that we're Christians? And the good news for us as Christians is through this faith that God has given us by his grace, th that allows us to work within the law and have good works, which we didn't have before. And so this, this law has a really good thing, a really good aspect on us. It's not about legalism, but it is about obedience, and it helps us see how we're supposed to live. And, and if we don't take that and apply it not just to our lives, or like I said, personal piety, but apply it to the whole world, then things aren't going to go well. Well, the Reformers weren't the first ones, though, to see this value of the law in our whole lives. And we can go back a little farther to them, to King Alfred. Alfred was the king of England uh, back in the 800s. I'm pretty sure it was right in that time. And things were a mess back in that time. He had become king of one of the smaller little kingdoms in southern England, at the time when the Vikings were invading and had been invading England for centuries. And in fact, um, King Alfred was run out of his own country into the swamps uh, of, uh, of western England over near Wales in, in that area because of the Vikings who had just basically taken over the country. Uh, most of them were pagan. They came in and just slaughtered and killed to take over. And so Alfred had to go into the swamps until he could rejuvenate and gather people before him. And then he did, and he came out of the swamps, and he reconquered all of England, and he became the first king who basically ruled all of what we know of as England today through his efforts. Once he did, he did not hesitate to, to put into place a system of governance that is still with us today in many ways and, and serves as the foundation of that because one of the first things he did was he put in a law code that was thoroughly Christian. It, it took the Mosaic law but reflected a New Testament perspective on it. And and he, and, he, and he took that law, and it, it wasn't brand new because there were a lot of Christians in England, and they knew the importance of law even back then. But he took this existing practices and those things, codified them, and then put them in the law, and that served as the foundation for what later became to be known as English common law. And it stuck. The Normans came in you know, a couple hundred years e or later. William the Conqueror in 1066 took over. But they ex honored, in large part, those existing laws of England. And it became the law of the land. Well, then here comes King John. Now, you may know King John. You may not. He signed the Magna Carta in 1215. But before that, 
Uh, he was the brother of the King Richard. That would be Richard the Lionhearted. And this is the period of time. So Richard the Lionhearted was a brave man, but he was largely French. And so he spent most of his time outside of England, even either on his French territories, but even more so on the Crusades. And so while Richard was gone, King John, or not King John, but his brother John ruled for him in England, and he was a bad man. He and his cronies just tried to enrich themselves. They didn't want Richard to come back. And that's a period of time from which we get the story of Robin Hood. And it's likely that Robin Hood was a real man, but whether he was or not, the stories come out of there reflect the, just the evilness and the wickedness of John. Well, Richard comes back but then dies of, uh, of a wound, and John becomes king, and things just got worse and worse. And things got so bad that the barons essentially revolted and got to the point where they were going to engage in military action unless John signed the Magna Carta. So he signed it under duress. But what happened then, even though John quickly ignored the Magna Carta and it came to some wars and battles after that, the Magna Carta served as the foundation for constitutional law in England and then constitutional law in America. So in the few minutes we have remaining, I'd just like to go over a few aspects of the Magna Carta and, and help us understand how directly this document written over 800 years ago now influenced the law in our country and the founders of our country and the documents that they developed, the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. It's almost like you just pick it up out of the Magna Carta and put it in our documents and into our law. So let me just hit a, a couple of points. So one, one thing you can pull out of the Magna Carta is th just the liberty aspect of it and the rule of law. And so, for instance, the very first thing, paragraph, provision in the um, Magna Carta is about religious liberty. And let me just read some of it to you. In the first place, we grant to God and confirm by this our present charter, and remember when he says we and our, he's talking about himself, King John, confirmed by this our present charter for ourselves and our heirs in perpetuity that the English church is to be free and to have all its rights fully and its liberties entirely. I mean, does that not sound familiar to us about the separation of church and state? Well, it's actually not the separation of church and state. It's the Establishment Clause in the Constitution that says the United States government may establish no official church because the founders of our country looked back on the Magna Carta and realized how important it was. As a matter of fact, the people who had come to America had come here largely because the English people had basically ignored this in the Magna Carta or more appropriate, probably more accurately, the English church had decided to persecute people who were not part of the English church. And so the religious liberties promised in the Magna Carta were only for people in the English church, which was the Church of England, and if you're outside of that, you could be persecuted. 
So Americans didn't want any part of that and so we put the Establishment Clause in the United States Constitution, which has, of course, been abused today. There's no, there's no separation of – there might be some separation of church and state, but there's no separation of God and state, but people want to use it for that. So that's kind of the liberty and the law of the, uh, law of the land part of that is also that in the, in the Magna Carta, there's this provision that says – well, it just mentions the law of the land. It says, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any way except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. Well, the lawful judgment of his equals, of course, is what we get today when it comes to a jury of his peers. But this law of the land concept was really important because what had happened was there was a law in the land at the time of King John, English common law, built out of Alfred's. But the king thought he was above it. And so the barons who were pushing the Magna Carta on John wanted to ensure that John knew that he was not above the law of the land. And in fact, we go forward to our days and we see that that language, the law of the land, is in the United States Constitution. It's in the Supremacy Clause, which says that the laws of the United States, the Constitution, shall be the supreme law of the land. And it kind of points us towards the states, says the states need to obey that, but it's also clear that everybody ought to obey it, the president, Congress, and everybody else. The laws that they make need to be in pursuance thereof of the Constitution. So it's really important to look at that. There's also a separation of powers that we see in the Magna Carta uh, where, for instance, it says that if you're going to tax, you have to – the king was going to tax people. They were going to have to bring – he was going to have to bring the barons and the nobles or the landed people in and ask for their permission. Does that sound like familiar things? No taxation without representation. That's what led to parliament in England. It's what led to the one of the battle cries for the American Revolution, no taxation without representation. You, you have to have this kind of separation of powers. You can't just have one person at the top doing all things. That doesn't look good. We also have federalism in the Magna Carta where, for instance, it says the city of London and other cities like that must have all their ancient liberties and customs, right? So it's not just the federal government, but we need these local governments that make things happen. And then there's a lot about property rights where sheriffs and officials and other people can't take your property without your consent or without lawful judgment of your equals. Right? So all of those things are embodied not just in the Magna Carta, but in the United States Constitution and in our laws today. So we'll just close up by saying that it, you know, if we dig down into the foundations of American law, it's just impossible to miss how the founding of our country and our laws were grounded in God's law. Limited civil government, rule of law, decentralization, all those biblical concepts are enshrined in the Magna Carta and directly imported into our country's founding documents. Unfortunately, 
In our fallen world, man is continuing to corrupt God's good gifts to us, including his law. And of course, one way that's happening today is, is this attempt to erase our Western European and Christian heritages so that we can no longer clearly see where our laws came from and the consequences of the changes that are being made to them. So next week in part two of our look at the law, we're going to pick up this theme again and look at how American law is being corrupted into a tool for what the 19th century French writer Frederick Bastiat calls legal plunder. And thank you once again for being with us on the Liberty Cafe. Pleasure to have you here, and it's great to be part of the Texas Scorecard team, who's our sponsor. Please go to the Texas Scorecard and check out all they've got. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe by Texas Scorecard. You can find more shows and great content at texasscorecard.com. Please consider leaving a review or rating the show on whatever podcasting platform you listen to.